Welcome to the dive table. I'm Jay Gardner, your co-host, and with me as always is pun master forgetful Nick Hogel. Nick, how are you doing today? Wait a minute, where are we? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to be here today. I'm glad to be here what with all of you. And um, to remind you, Nick, producer Daniel is that <laughs> guy sitting over there. Uh, he is here as well, which must mean we're recording another episode of the show. So today we're, we're really excited to welcome back Mr. Mike Galt to the table for part two. We had an amazing part one um, of an interview and we just can't get enough of, of uh, what you have to say. So we're back for part two. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Doing great. Good. You ready, you ready for part two? I'm you ready. came back for more. So. I'm ready for part two. All right. Good. All right. You guys ready to, uh, to jump in? Oh, I'm ready to giant stride right into this. A podcast for scuba divers everywhere. Take your seat at the dive table with your hosts, Nick Hogel and Jay Gardner. All right. So, obviously, back today is Mike Galt, and we want to welcome him to the table, but not any table, the dive table. And a quick recap from part one of this interview, Mike is a veteran diver and has been sharing some incredible insights with us about his career in diving. Um, really good stuff. So, hopefully, you heard part one and not just jumping into part two. Um Mike has shared his experiences on an exploration diver through his involvement with multiple exploration projects, including the Flower Garden Brine Seep Expedition, which we will get into more. Um, it's going to be a part of the extras. We'll throw it out there. Um, the Woodville Karst Plains Project, WKPP, um, and the Good Enough Springs Exploration Project, um, which I definitely, definitely want to hear more about. Uh, but here in part two, we want to focus more on Mike's philosophy in approaching diving from both a technical and a training perspective. And um, I'm actually really looking forward to this part of it because uh, Mike was the instructor that basically introduced me to technical diving and other aspects of it. So I'm really, really excited about this part two. Awesome. So welcome back, Mike. Um, first question really is obviously you're a, an extremely experienced diver period but especially you're an experienced technical diver with all the expedition diving exploration you've done um can you tell us more about your philosophy and, and how it's shaped up around tech diving uh sure <clears throat> so hey, one of the one of the things i like to encourage folks to consider when they're First, getting into technical diving or, or considering whether to get into technical diving is to is to understand the risks. I think that's really really important for people to to understand the the risks that they're taking. You know, one of, one of the awesome things about recreational scuba diving is that you know with a with a little bit of training, a little bit of knowledge, and some good judgment, it can be a, a reasonably safe activity that that most healthy people can can enjoy. And and there's there are that that training and knowledge that I mentioned, you know, in, includes some some protocols that that all they all hinge upon uh, being able to at any point in the dive you can you can go to the surface if you need to for for whatever reason you can end the dive you can just swim up and dives over you know you can get back on the boat 
whatever. Uh, when with technical diving, one of the things that distinguishes technical diving from recreational diving, and in, in my mind, is is that you you for most types of technical diving, maybe all depends on you know, how you want to define it, is you 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 lose that ability to just surface at any given point. Uh, maybe because you're inside a cave, for example, and so you, there's a little there's a literal ceiling above you. You can't just go up. You got to get out of the cave and then you come up. If you're talking about decompression diving, then you have what we call an artificial ceiling. Um, you could swim directly to the surface on an open water decompression dive, uh, but because of the need to perform stage decompression on your way up so that you can eliminate some of the inert gas, because of that, you would put yourself at extreme risk surfacing um, immediately to the surface. So you have what we call an artificial ceiling where you have to stop um, on the way up to decompress. And so that needs to be treated almost as if it were an actual hard ceiling. And so once you, once you take that option of just surfacing off the, off the table, then there, there are additional risks involved. And so I feel it's important for people to understand the risk for a couple reasons. Number one, so they can make a smart decision on, is this something I even want to be doing? Like, is this important enough to me, you know, that, that I want to take these risks? And then the all important next question is, okay, what do I need to do to manage those risks? What additional knowledge do I need? What additional safety protocols do I need? What additional equipment do I need? Um, what additional mental and physical preparedness do I need to have uh, to be able to do this with a reasonable degree of safety? And so all that hinges upon first even knowing what are the risks that I'm that I'm taking here. Um, one of the things I mentioned in there that a technical diver needs to consider is the the equipment needs for the for the dive. And so another another key part of my approach or philosophy to technical diving is uh, ju judicious ju oh, excuse me judicious use of of technology. So we do need to we're going to go into a foreign environment. Uh, we're not made you know naturally made to be able to breathe underwater. Obviously, we need to use technology to be able to to do this. And so we are going to be dependent on technology to a degree. But we don't want to be over dependent on technology or, or, or commit what I would consider a technology abuse of using too much technology or the wrong kind of technology or unnecessary technology. Because mm -hmm. if we if we do that, then that just brings in additional risks that could be avoided. When you say technology, um, you you mean both mechanical and and digital or, or whatever's available. So just to be clear for the listeners out there, because sometimes people yeah. hear technology, they think immediately it's, it's digital technology, but it's, it's right. mechanical technology. It's, it's what we've created in order to breathe underwater. Exactly. Yeah. And so really it's, it's anything, any, any equipment or tools and whatnot that you would use on, on the dive, whether it be a, a regulator, uh, you know, uh, a knife, a dive computer, uh, it could be uh, decompression software that you're using on a desktop computer back at home to plan the dive. Just any form of, of tool uh, or thing that you would use to, to execute the dive. Yeah. Right. yeah. And another one is, is to use you know, logical, logical decisioning. You know, asking ourselves, you know, do, do I 
you know, do I need to do this uh, before? And this this one relates really close closely to the ju- judicious use of technology. Um, do, you know, deciding um, is using logic to say, okay, um, do I have a risk here that I need to try to address with a piece of technology? Um, if if yes, then um, what technology do I use to address that? And when I when I add that, recognizing that the use of that technology can bring in other risks, other additional risks. So it's a cost benefit type situation to say, if I'm going to use add this additional piece of equipment, am I am I eliminating am I eliminating more risk by using it than the amount of risk that I am adding by using it. So is there a, is there a ROI or a net gain from bringing this piece of technology in? Cause any, any time I bring in the technology, there's a risk that it can malfunction, right? Or there's a, there's a risk that um, I might misuse it. There could be use, um, human error in employing the technology. Right. So, you know, logically, uh, do I need this? Is, is this the thing that, and, you know, and we can talk about in a moment, some, some more concrete examples of those. Um, the other is something I, I mentioned in, in part one, and that's building, building a culture of safety. So it's safety is not, is not only employing protocols and rules and, and guidelines of things of how you do things. Uh, safety is also about a mindset and, and prioritizing the things that we need to do to be able to, you know, make this a, a reasonable, reasonably safe activity. And a, a really key one is staying, staying humble. Very, very important um, in technical diving to stay humble. This is not a, it's not a competitive sport. We're not trying to, not trying to impress anybody or shouldn't be trying to impress anybody. Uh, shouldn't be trying to outdo somebody and and then arguably more importantly that humility to recognize that you know there may be some things that i don't know and i need to i need to be open minded i need to be listening i need to recognize i need to be confident but not cocky if you will i want to i want to i want to have practiced enough studied enough be familiar with the people that i'm diving with enough that that i'm i'm comfortable and confident but always humbly aware that if it, I need to, I, I am at the mercy of nature and, and that I need to, you know, do the right things, um, make sure I'm tending to my business or cause I can fall victim to nature. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, so wow, there's a lot in there for me to react to, but the one that is coming to my mind right now is I think that that, that there is a fine line between confident and cocky. And, and I do think that there's a perception out there that for whatever reason, and I'm not going to point fingers or name names or anything like that, but, but I certainly have observed it on dive boats and at the dive sites I go to, wherever it might be, just in, gosh, just open what is scuba board.com or whatever it is. Or why, why are you looking at me uh, right now, Jay? Why are you looking at me? What's going on? It's just your lovely hair. Uh, you must be using that mane and tail. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that, that I think that line coming from someone as yourself, 
that, that has so much experience. I think that's something to hone in on if you're listening to this and, and maybe you are a technical diver, but there is a perception and there is a line where, where it becomes super cocky. I know more than you, um, you know, look at those, you know, unfortunately there's a, there's a phrase stroke out there, or, you know, uh, you know, all this stuff. And there's some truth to the observation of what that person is doing. Sometimes, you know, a technical diver will see a recreational diver as being much more, you know, taking many more risks than they'd be comfortable with. Right. But can you talk a little bit more about towing that line between confidence and cockiness? Because I think that's a lesson that is extremely valuable to those that are either technical divers now or that, that are getting into it to, to keep that open mind, that humbleness, um, that there's always more to know. Right. So I think, I think confidence, a way to illustrate confidence is like knowing Knowing your method, knowing what you're doing, knowing knowing why you do it, knowing knowing how you came at arriving to that, how you vetted that, the process you went through of, of learning it and understanding that to be a sound method, and and being comfortable that you've done your your due diligence to arrive at that. And I think where cockiness comes into play is if it stops there. And, and then you're, you then, you then believe, okay, now I've got it. I've got the answer, right? I know it. What's important to realize is, well, yeah, but you had to get there somehow. And your understanding of this before you got to that point, there was a point along the way where you understood it to be another way at some point, right? And you had to, you had to study, you had to listen to others, you had to learn to get to the point where you're at. And so cockiness is what starts to come into play is when, when you think that journey's done and that you, you, that you got it and that you know it now and you, you've, you've lost sight of the fact that, no, there are still things for you to learn. And I, I guess that's kind of how I would, I would describe that. And it's, a, you know, it's interesting. Like we got to be able to admit like when you're wrong, like in part one, like I had fun making fun of myself. I was a Christmas tree. I, I had two gauges, right? I did it wrong. Like um, some of what I understand to be right now, I know, I believe that because I did it wrong. And like I learned from my mistakes. But mostly we want to learn from other people's mistakes. There was a, um, oh man, I forget which, um, old Latin Greek guy from way back when or whatever that, that said it and I'll paraphrase, but the, the comment was um, like, you know, smart people, this is a loose paraphrase, but it's like, you know, smart people learn from their mistakes. Right. But the really, really wise learn from other people's mistakes. <laughs> That's right. That's right? right. Yeah. And cause let's face it in technical diving, there, there are mistakes that can be made that you don't get a chance to learn from. Right. Um, there, there have been people who have died doing this. They didn't get a chance to learn from that, from that mistake. So we want to learn. We want to learn from other people's mistakes. Um, and we, we want to learn from their successes. We, we want to learn from people who have been there before us, uh, the examples of what not to do, as well as the examples of what, of what to do. And in my personal opinion, if you're not, if you're not of a lifelong learner kind of mentality, uh, or have an open mind that like I, there is something can, to continuously learn, uh, technical diving and my judgment isn't, isn't an activity for you. 
I, I teach, I teach to learn. That's why I keep teaching scuba diving because I learn every time I, every time I do a class, I learn, you know, and I hear people, I hear students say, I didn't learn a single thing in that class is worst class I ever took. I hate it, that. If you, if you ever take a class, you didn't learn something in that class. That's on you. Your that fault. is on you. Yeah. Um, well, no. So I, I, I kind of want to bring that back. Cause even in, in, uh, the, the first interview we went into how, you know, you're like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dive master. I know everything. Do you think that's like, do you, do you think that's an, not, I don't want to say an agency thing, but they're, they're there to build you up. They're there to be like, you are it. And I do see that in some of these agencies now where it's, they want to promote you. They want you to believe that everything that you're learning is the correct way. Um, that's the, like, if they're not doing it this way, it's the wrong way to do it. I, I don't want to say do it right way. Um, because that's taking it completely out of context, but, um, do you think that's like something, I mean, because essentially you do want to be built up, but how do you, where do you find that line? You know, like you were just saying, it's like, cause it's like you said, you, uh, I walked into this place. I'm a dive master. What do you really, you know, like, and then the reaction that you got because you walked in there, like I do know. And then does yeah, that make sense? Or diving, to me, diving, there's something really interesting about diving and how people, people tend to lump divers and diving together. Right. Um, dive masters. Um, there's, there's, plenty of dive masters out there today who were like me when I first became a dive master don't have any business doing some of the stuff I'm doing right now. Um, there's some things those dive masters are excellent experts at. Okay. Uh, it all, it kind of depends on the context. They may be very good at supervising, uh, already certified divers, or they, they may be very good at assisting an instructor and to a brand new diver that just entered an open water class that, you know, that is something. When, you know, they, and dive masters have to achieve uh, what some or maybe all agencies refer to as demonstration quality skills. You have to be able to clear your mask, clear your regular, you have to be able to do these basic scuba skills at a level where you can demonstrate it to a student. Hey, they're, you know, these guys are pretty advanced, but you're going to put them in a cave at 300 feet deep, you're going to put them on the Andrea Doria. That may be completely unqualified to that. And there's people, there's plenty of divers out there that hold no professional ratings that could dive circles around that dive master. But you get that label dive master. And, you know, the, way, the reason I say it's interesting in scuba diving is we're all just underwater, right? But somehow that puts us all like we're all measured against each other. You wouldn't, you wouldn't take the person who walks around the block every morning to get a little bit of exercise and outdoors and compare them to an Olympic sprinter. You know, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't compare an Olympic sprinter to a mountain climber, but they're all doing the same thing. They're all walking, right? They're all just using their feet and their legs, but you would never make those comparisons between those, those people. But for some reason, divers feel like they need to compare a recreational dive master to a cave diver, you know, to an underwater photographer, and it, it's like this, I don't know, I think that sometimes people honestly feel intimidated by these labels sometimes. Like, I didn't get my dive master, so let me, you know, let me downgrade uh, 
a dive master because I can I can dive better than them. And it's like, well, them being a dive master, nobody that doesn't mean they're a better diver than you. And by the way, what is a better diver, right? What <laughs> the hell does that even mean? You know, <laughs> episode what number? <laughs> I love it. it just, I love it. it just I means, do. It just means that they've gone through this series of uh, preparations and developed themselves so that they can perform these specific duties of this specific role. Yeah. No, I, I agree because, um, and I, I, I hate to bring this up. I know it brings, you know, up a little bit of ill will on this subject. But, you know, yeah, when I first started, you see that chart, you know, you're like, oh, open water, advanced. This is where I got to go. Dive master. Once I hit that, I'm, I'm going to be a good master diver. Master scuba diver. Yeah. And I know, right? Um, I'll, I'll give you my cert number here in a second. But, uh no, and, and you do pin. see that. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, you do see that. And, and you know, I, I, I don't think the agency or the shop or whoever is in the wrong in building you up because it is an achievement, even a master scuba diver, in my opinion. It is an achievement, not to the greatest degree of, yeah, the person that's been 400 feet down in the water, but an achievement is an achievement. You know, if, if you take someone that couldn't walk around the block last year and now they're doing two miles, that's an achievement, right? But to the person that runs marathons, that's like, wow, not a big deal, still an achievement. So I don't think that there's necessarily a bad thing in recognizing that achievement, but yes, it's different from being confident as opposed to cocky, you know? So I, I, I do see that like, Oh, people, I'm a dive master. I'm, I'm huge. But having that humility, as you were saying to realize, like, I still have so much further to go, even though I'm this dive master and yeah, right there, dive master. Um, but I, I do, I do think that you should be proud of that achievement, but just know that there's a lot further to go. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. We're, <laughs> Yeah, we, we don't want to rehash old things, but but maybe your opinion. Oh, we're bringing it back. My opinion of that is that there is a human factor of the label and of an agency, something of authority. I won't even call it an agency, but some someone, something in a position of authority, giving you this label that that sounds, I mean, pretty good, um, you know, and it's hyped up in some ways. And so some of what you're saying too is like. And I think it's a good point to drive home is that the label, whether you're a technical diver or a cube diver or a, or a master scuba diver or whatever, doesn't define the diver, right? Doesn't doesn't just like you're saying, you may categorize some things that you've achieved or that you've checked off the list, but those could be very different from somebody else, right? And so yeah. I think the, the humbleness is is saying I might have a label, but it doesn't mean anything from perspective of my own um, view of myself that I have more to go. Yeah. 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 And, and I kind of see, I see it on both fronts where the, the humility starts to fail in folks and you, you can see it from the people who have some of these grandiose labels, words like master in, in their titles and things. And I've, I've seen people, um, with those labels, um, you know, exhibit cocky behaviors, I'll say, mm-hmm. um, because they feel like, okay, I've achieved this. This is a high level. 
This is, and so they, they'll lose that humility. Why are you and, looking at me right now, Mike? I look at you now. <laughs> and, um, and, and I, but I, the other, the other thing that I see is um, people who, for whatever reason, chose not to take continuing education, right? And which is fine. And they, they might, many of them are highly experienced divers and they're, they're excellent divers. Um, where humility fails them sometimes is they feel like they have to drag those other guys down. The people who did choose to invest in themselves to get formal training, acquire formal certifications, and they, I feel like they are intimidated by, by that. And so, you know, in, in some sort of ego driven way, um, they, they, they feel the need to try to convince people that, well, just because that person's a master diver or a dive master doesn't mean they're a better diver than me. I just, because I didn't take those classes, like they're not better than me. That's, that's lack of humility. That's ego. That's ego driven. Um, and so I, I kind of see that failing folks on, on a couple, couple different, couple different ways there from both sides of that fence, if you will. No, it's, a, it's, I think it's just, uh, I mean, gosh, I don't want to make the whole episode about this, but it's, it's such an important topic because, you know, we've talked about this, Nick, that, you know, there's ego and then there's self or soul or whatever you want to call it, um, not to go down that path of the, you know, uh, getting too deep into that stuff. But it's, it's really amazing for me to sit here and hear you say that when, if there's a diver at this table who could have an ego or should is you. And, uh, and so, I mean, I think if you're listening out there and you're hearing Mike's words, like this guy has done real stuff and could instead say, no, egos, you know, look at what I've done. And instead he's saying one of the keys of, of growing and developing as a diver is to try and remove the ego from it. And I think that, that's a really important message, and, and I really appreciate you saying that. Sure. And I, I think the, the, the important thing to keep in mind here on, on the subject to hand of technical diving is when this happens in, in, in more of the recreational side of things, you know, it's really, it's, it's personal feelings. It's maybe people saying, you know, trying to be keyboard warriors in social media, making, <laughs> making points and everything. Yep thing to keep in mind here is I mentioned that in the context of a technical diving philosophy, because it can literally get you killed. If you, if you have it, I mean, this isn't about, this isn't about that stuff anymore. It's not about whether I impress people with my knowledge on social media or whether I made a fool of myself, you know, arguing with people on social media. You know, and I've been in my share of arguments all, on social media, I admit, but man, when I get out at the dive site, you know, it's a, it's a different story. Like you, this can get you, this can get you into trouble in, in technical diving. If, if you can't be humble, um, one of the things in, you know, in my career in quality management, I've done a lot of work, um, in my, in my real job, my day job. Um, the one that, that helps me be able to afford being a dive instructor is, you know, I do a lot of change. I do a lot of change management, you know, and one of the things I observed in that with human behavior and I, as a early on in process improvement projects, I didn't realize this. And I had, I had to learn through my mistakes. I couldn't understand some of the resistance to change that people had. And I didn't realize when I went into a meeting room 
and told people like, we need to, we need to change this. Wasn't even thinking about the fact that there's maybe there was somebody in this room. It was their idea. You know, (laughs) maybe there was somebody in this room who, who uh, built a career on that. Maybe there's somebody in this room who was really bought into that and argued for that and been sold it. Maybe that, maybe they're, they're, you know, that that's how they've been making their living. And I really underestimated the natural tendency for people to want to cling to those things because, you know, because of some perceived ego threat. Um, and you see this in diving. Um, somebody will have a, a suboptimal equipment configuration or maybe a dangerously dangerous equipment configuration. And what I'm talking about staying humble is you got to be able to admit, hey, I got it wrong. And, and keep in mind, a lot of your technical divers are dive instructors. So not only do they have it wrong, oh, guess what? They've told other people yeah. to do it this way. Yeah. And so <laughs> it's really like you really got to be able to say, you know, whoop, I got more. I'm working with more information now than I had before. And I can make a dev, I can make a different decision now that I now that I'm working with that information and and be able be able to do that and make that and make that change. Uh, people will dig in their heels uh, and try to defend things and stick to them. And, you know, by def, you, you know, the idea, I'm a very continuous improvement minded kind of person. I'm a, always continuously trying to improve things. By definition, improvement is change. Like you can't, you can't improve if you're just going to try to keep doing, doing these things. And, you know, and I'm, I'm saying that as somebody who's at times very passionate about why I do the things the way that I do. And I can get very, very uh, animated and very passionate, you know, trying to convince others and all. And, and so people who have experienced me like that may be wondering, like, really? Like, you can change? Like, but I, but I can, like, I can, you know? And I'm, and I'm, I'm imperfect too. And this is why I do one of the things I do you know, with my, with my dive buddies and then I'll give them permission to call me out on things and let me know if they, you know, if they think that I'm doing something wrong, we can talk about that. That's, you know, it's a big thing. Like even like post dive debriefing, like we did a lot of that, um, when I was training with Pat, you know, um, we, as a, as a student group, we would debrief the dive and we would talk about what we did wrong during, during the dive, like these, these things take some, some humility to, to be able to do. Well, that, that's a really important piece as well in the sense that a lot of times when someone is asking for feedback, what they're really asking for is a compliment. And I think it's that, that goes back to the open mindedness of, I know for myself when I was I'm still learning. I should say what I was learning. I am learning and continuing to learning, but I was craving that feedback. And what I got back was good job. And, and I was really dissatisfied with that because, um, I know that there were areas to improve. I just didn't know which ones and I wanted that feedback. And so I think it's important in scuba diving to criticize and not even to criticize, to feedback, to say, I noticed that you know, for example, if you're in side mount, your bottles are out of trim, you know, or, you know, you're dropping your knees on your, on your frog kick there, or you're, you know, skip breathing on this piece of the dive or whatever it would be to, to give that feedback 
is not this is not the same thing as saying and you're a bad diver. But when you hear those things, if your ego is at play, what you hear is I'm a bad diver. I'm terrible at this. And separating those two things out between getting feedback and desiring that feedback from the judgment of am I good or bad, they're two separate things um, in a lot of ways. And I and I think that you know in the change management um, side of the world, that's a that's a huge part of the change management is to say it's not that you are bad; it's that this process or this thing or whatever it might be, um, there's a better way to do it. It's not that it's bad; it worked, sure, but we can improve it. And so it's really interesting to hear you say those things and. And a lot of the scuba industry, at least that I've experienced, is more of the, you know, happy-go-lucky feedback machine of compliments rather than giving honest feedback. And I think if you're considering technical diving, um, it's not about the definition of judgment of good or bad. It's about the feedback about what happened and the ability to continuously improve yourself or your protocols or your your gear configuration or whatever those things might be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a lot of pressure on folks sometimes too. Like I remember when I, when I first became a recreational open water instructor, I felt I put a lot of pressure on myself and I was pretty young at the time, barely old enough to be an instructor. Some of this is just maturity, but, or lack thereof in this case, but like I felt a lot of pressure to be right. I felt a lot of pressure to be the expert, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so it, it was difficult to show, you know, vulner vulnerability. And when you're in that, when you're in that situation and people, you know, you know, people are telling you like, you got people trusting, they're putting their lives in your hand. Like you're, you're responsible for their safety. It can be, it can be difficult. Um, and, and that's why, that's why this, what I was referring to earlier about the culture of safety is, is important. Cause if you, if you have a culture of safety, that takes the pressure off of those folks. Because now they don't, they don't have to be perfect all the time. They don't have to know everything. What we're looking for is, is somebody who can admit when they have something new to learn and can make a change. That's, that's what we're looking for. That's the behavior that gets, that gets rewarded. Um, well, good. Um, so maybe switching gears just a little bit, we can talk a little bit about uh, instructing. So you are both a technical and recreational and public safety instructor, and you hold multiple ratings with multiple agencies. Um, can you share with us a little bit more about your philosophy on the current state of dive training? I have some thoughts here. <laughs> uh, real, real quick too. I am actually uh, curious. What is your instructor number? My, uh, with which agency? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say TDI. Or TDI. The only one that I teach technical diving. Well, the, the only one I, I teach technical diving through is TDI. My, um, my instructor number is 608. Instructor, <laughs> instructor trainer number is, is 608. I love that. I yeah. love that. Um, and honestly, it's only that high because when, when TDI was formed, you know, there was, there was, for the most part, there was only one agency around. It was INTD. There was also one called Andy. Um, but it was for, for the most part, it was INTD. And, and when Brett Gillum decided he wanted to spin off and do things differently, he wanted to take the curriculum a different way. And he, you know, he was on a board of INTD when he, he spun off. Um, so he already, as a board member of INTD, had essentially blessed all those instructors, right? And so 
I can remember back that Aquacore magazine we're talking about. I remember an ad. I, I don't remember the exact number. It was in the neighborhood of $20, $25. You want to be a TDI instructor, uh, send in your, we'll say 20, let's say it's 25 for the sake of argument. Send in your, you know, your $25 if you were an INTD instructor. And so there was a initial wave of a bunch of instructors because there was uncertainty in the business. Like, well, what's going to happen with INTD now? Are they going to go out of business and it's all going to be TDI? Are they going to be both? And which, who do I, you know, hitch my wagon to, <laughs> right. right? And so most of the people in front of me were administratively just crossed <laughs> over in, in mass. And so, uh, no, I just, I'm, I'm curious and, and it just basically brings up what the, the, the question that Jay brought up, I should say, um, is there, there is a lot of training agencies out there and it goes back into, um, you know, we have the, the, the GUEs, the UTDs, the, uh, these training agencies where they're bringing out, um, where this is how you become a better diver. How do you feel about that compared to where it was and what you need to do if that, if that makes sense, that question? Yeah. So I, there was an interesting thing that happened in dive, dive instruction, Many years ago, there there was a point where I would actually say, like I, I in part one we talked about how this was a brand new activity, and I, and I talked about I talked about this tech conference where these folks are trying to figure out how do we set standards, who wants to put their name on the standard? Like if you're, I wouldn't be qualified to do it anyway, and we wouldn't want to spend the time on it right now. But like if you really want to understand it, look into the legal significance of like duty of care and professional standards like this is important stuff and like who's going to be the guy to stand up and you know or the small group of guys to stand up and say this is this is how you do it and and take that on and and so it, it was difficult times brand new brand new hobby activity sport whatever you want to call it not a lot established and so obviously you know, the training standards early on would hopefully not be as good as they are today, right? Because if they were as good then as they are now, then we're not doing stuff as good as we should be now, right? Yeah. We've got decades of learning here. And and so there was a period of time where uh, dive training standards, well, I, I think, had a, lacked a lot, needed a lot of improvement. I'll say that. And are you saying I, on a recreational I, I, well, or a technical? I'm, I'm, actually, on both. Okay. And and um, you got to to give some context. Uh, you know, when I was a Patty instructor, Patty, one of the things they did good is they, they did some good market research. So they're getting out there and finding out what are consumers looking for, what do they want, and really that's what the business's job is to do is to find out you know what people people want and try to deliver that to them. That's how market systems work. Um, it can be a little tricky in diving because what do they want? Well, you're also supposed to be the person as the educator that's helping them figure that out. It's kind of a conflict of interest. So it's a little, it's, it can get complicated, but they're getting, they're getting consistent feedback. And you still hear it today, people that I want, why aren't you taking dive, dive training? Classes take too long, too much. You know, we need them. We want them shorter. You know, we don't want to spend that much time in the classroom. One of my frustrations in dive instruction for many years was when I'd have students who the way I put it is like, there's a lot of people out there that want to dive, but they don't want to learn how to dive. Like they don't, they're, they're, they're people 
or they're, they're just, they have different interests than I do. I like the learning. Like I like sitting in class. There's some people are like, I don't want to sit in class. I already went to school. I don't want to like, you know? And so there was a lot of consumer pressure to dumb down the training. Right. You know, and, and it's difficult. Like to, if somebody's only going to dive in the day, do they need to learn how to dive at night? If they're only going to dive to 60 feet, do they need to learn how to dive to a hundred? Like, and so we had a situation where there, I think the quality of training in general was, was lacking. There was a whole lot more that people could learn. And now I come, I look at it today and honestly, and this is more so in technical diving than recreational. And I feel like in some respects, like I would never say like, we can't be striving for more in education, but in some respects, like the pendulum has swung too far the other way. And what I'm, what I'm seeing today is again, going back to quality management, what's your, what is your definition of quality? Hey, we hear, we hear this term, well, higher standards. We have higher standards. We go deeper. We do more dives. Well, who's to say what a, what a higher, what a higher standard is. Is that, is that producing a diver that's better prepared to do the kind of diving they want to do just because you went 10 or 20 feet deeper on your training dives or just because you did six dives instead of five dives more, more isn't always, more isn't always better. And what, what happened and we saw this happening is that the, the, the WKPP was a tremendous resource to technical diver education. And it happened through informal channels with people who got exposed to those methods and they took it out there and, and shared it with others. And it was a great thing. And, and, you know, now we have, we have an agency that patterned their whole curriculum, you know, based off of that. And there, and there's another agency, uh, that spun off from that. And, and, you know, there was a, it, it attracted people who were looking for what I would say is higher quality training. These are all great things, all great things. Like it's wonderful that folks have taken those lessons from that project and made them more available to a larger audience. It's great. But the thing I see happening that troubles me is, you know, I, I hear people talk about the number of degrees they're off on their trim as if, as if 30 degrees and 35 degrees makes a difference between the two. And I, I feel like, you know, we're crossing a line into marketing, right? Like, are these divers really better? Like, are you doing this because it's really better preparing them for their dives? Or is it so that you have a measured number that, that you can, that you can advertise to people to say, our people are hitting, our people are hitting this number. Our people are hitting this number. You know, does it really matter? Like you, it, from day one in my deco classes, and I didn't make it up, right? I got this from other people. Like you needed to be able to hold your stop depth. Okay. You couldn't be going up too far. You couldn't be dropping down too far. That's a problem if you are, right? You're out of control because there's two things. Number one, you know, you can exceed an oxygen limit. You know, you can exceed a ceiling. Okay. Those are bad. You don't want to, you don't want to do those. It can also just be an indication that you're just don't have enough uh, buoyancy control to, to be able to do this kind of diving. So that's important, right? Um, I, I'll hear 
but I, you know, I hear guys talking about six inches, like going up down six inches. Like what happens at six inches guys? Like, <laughs> you know, does well, my it, girlfriend, it means a lot. But no, I, I, um, I like that just because, um, um, so when I did my, we're going back to the dive master training, um, the, the diving was done in it's there's walls, there's walls, you know, you, you have walls going down to 300 feet into the ocean. Um, and I had that, that mentality of, I need to, before I got there, like I always need to be in trim. I need to be horizontal in the water. And then when I got there, I was to me, when I got there, uh, I, I was trying to stay in trim and then my neck just kept hurting. Cause I'm trying to look at this wall, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the walls right here. And I literally started, okay, I'm, I'm going to be parallel to the wall. That's not in trim. If you look at me in the water, there's probably lots of pictures of me being vertical through the whole dive because now I can look and go through the whole dive. So to me, it was like, well, why do I need to be in, in horizontal trim? What's the, the advantage here? There's no advantage of me being horizontal, looking up as hard as I can to see the wall when I can just pop up and be vertical and be like, you know, parallel to the wall. And, um, so that's why to me, it's always kind of, a um, it depends what, like you're saying, what type of environment that you're in. Um, I agree. I think that that's a, a, a if, if you can maintain and, and do those skills, I think that's awesome. If you can stay within those, those six inches, I think that's awesome. Right. Right. And, and there's, I, don't get me wrong. Horizontal trim is, you know, very critical in some situations and, and a technical diver does need to be able to, to maintain that. And it, and it's especially important in overhead environments. If you're, if you're inside a wreck, you're inside a cave, you, you really need to be able to hold that. Uh, it, it doesn't take much to start stirring up the bottom. And that, that can, if, there, if you're having issues and you do that, it can compound them. Even if you're not having issues, it could be the first in a series of things that could start to, to build on you that can lead to, can lead to a problem. And you need to have the, the ability to control your, your horizontal trim. Uh, it's where, where it, where it crosses over a line with me is the, you know, the, the, the fashion show on social media, um, the vanity of look at my trim and, and look at this guy's trim, his knees are down a little bit, you know, on an open water dive, you know, maybe even a, maybe even a technical dive, you know, and, you know, you know, you need to, you need to be able to maintain your, your stop depth. Um, if you're a little off a of horizontal, does it matter? No. I mean, there, there used to be some talk about the, how you're, you're more efficient and, and off gassing at deco, you know, if you're, if you're horizontal, you know, and because the, you know, you don't want the pressure differential between the top and the bottom of your, of your, of your lungs. Right. Thank Thank God we don't have to worry about controlling our, our deco that precisely. Like if you think of the, you know, the, the, the variability and the, the, the margin of error on that, you know, if we, if we had to be concerned um, to, to that level of, of precision, we wouldn't be, able to, wouldn't be able to do this, right? 
Um, nothing wrong with being horizontal. There's nothing wrong with doing practice dives. Should be doing practice dives. They used to make fun of me because I did practice dives all the time. I had buddies, like I told you about Rob Steffen earlier, he, he lived in Pensacola. He was one of my main cave diving buddies for a while. And he had the luxury of, you know, caves. He could dive all the time, minutes away. I'm back here in Austin. What can I do? Like, I go to Lake Travis and practice. And people make fun of me for diving in the lake and practicing all the dang time, right? It's good. It's good stuff. Like, you do it. But it's, um, it, the, but the line, I feel like a line has been crossed there somewhere. Um, to, to a point where, um, you know, these higher standards have restricted instructor supply to a point where it's, it can be very hard to receive, to receive training. Um, and, and you have to, you have to travel, you know, and like, you don't learn technical diving in a weekend. You don't learn technical diving in a couple of weekends spread apart. Okay. This is best learned through internship, mentorship. Someone who can someone who can dive with you locally, regularly, continually, where you can absorb this stuff over a period of time, and and what happens when folks need to travel somewhere to to go do all this stuff, and some of the stuff you need to travel for because you need that environment, right? But there's a lot you can do at home, closer to home, a lot, and it, it's to a point where you you get divers who who are are so concerned about the, the, the vacation time that they're going to take and the thousands of dollars that they're going to spend on this class. And they, they don't want to go out there and, and fail and, and not get a C card while they're out there. They don't want to embarrass them themselves. So what are they doing? They're learning it before they go out there. They're diving, they're diving with friends who know how to do it. They're starting to get taught by people who are not even instructors who are teaching them. Um, and, and they're doing all this stuff to try to learn it so they can go out there and pass higher standards, which often the quote higher standards, um, they, they're manufacturing criteria to create what I would consider this illusion of a more superior diver that has, is losing its connection to what actually, uh, delivers results in a, in a high performing diver who can, who can focus on what they need to be focusing on in their training rather than worried about was that 31 or 32 or 30 degrees. Wow. I mean, I have to say, uh, my brain is just a little blown right now. I mean, and, and if I'm honest with myself right in this moment without, uh, what's the word hijacking the, the interview? I don't want to go there, but, um, but that gives me a lot to think about because I've been, I've been in some of those scenarios where exactly what you just described, right. And, um, exactly how you described it. Um, I I've lived that or am quote unquote living it in some ways. And so it's really interesting to hear that perspective for me, especially right now. Uh, and I'm sure for a lot of the listeners out there, um, that that perspective exists from, from again, someone as experienced as you are. Um, and I think that's an important thing for me to hear. So I appreciate you sharing that. And yeah. The thing, the thing I would encourage divers when they evaluate their, their training options um, is to ask themselves if they're, if they're, if an instructor puts them in that position, 
and you're doing something like not to harp on one, but just like the, these degrees of trim or whatever. And when ask yourself is what's being asked of me as a student, is this really helping me become a better diver, you know, safer diver? Uh, is it really helping me get the skills I need to go do the dives I want to do? Or does this help the agency sell their classes by giving them a claim of, of you know, what the criteria is for, for passing their, their classes? Does it, help, does it help them communicate to the public the standards that they're reaching for their student body at large? Does it help with that presentation? Or is this really making a difference in my development? So one, one thing um, I did... I, I, I want to bring up on that whole note is um, I, I feel that I've I've done both um, where I've taken classes here at home and then I've traveled to take classes um, going on that subject. And I have found for myself, um, it's very hard for me to w- – w- let me back up a little bit. When I take a class, I want to immerse myself in that class. I want to be able to live it, breathe it. I want to be able to take as much in as possible, right? So when um, I'm taking a class here, um, I, I did training through this one uh, this one shop, this one agency. I was training to become a professional. And it was basically like, okay, well, we all need our schedules to coincide because we all work full-time jobs and then we need to be able to work. Um, and then this is the side time thing. And then it became this thing where it's like, okay, I'm doing my day job. I can't fully immerse myself in that subject because I'm thinking all day, okay, I need to do this. I need to do that. And then I need to get here. Um, I wish I had that, that, that mentality, that push, to be able to be, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm spending every minute off of work on this subject. I'm not. That's not the individual that I am. Um, and that's why I do like to travel for classes because when I get there, there's nothing but this class. And I don't expect to pass that class. I don't expect to... Um, like, oh, I paid, I'm earning that certification. To me, I'm just able to put myself in that mindset of, hey, I'm fully, fully involved. I'm fully invested because I don't have to think about anything else. And um, I, 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 I do understand what you're saying. There is where you can train and get better here. But I feel like for me, it was a little bit of a harder option to do that. That's why I do like to, and, and granted I do have the benefit of, or, or, or I've created the, the situations where I'm like, when I go here, I'm going for a month. I'm not just going for a week. I'm not traveling for 10 days. And I know a lot of people do that. They're going to be like, Oh, I'm traveling here for 10 days. I want to take this class. Then I'm coming back and then going right back into things. I'm like, no, you know, granted it's not the smartest, uh, you know, situations that I put myself in, but I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go here for a month. I'm going to take this class. I'm going to immerse myself in that situation because when I, when I, um, and, and I've, I've literally used things that you've told me, um, where, you know, you're like, Hey, don't rush into things. Do not rush into things. Don't go there and take the four day class, 
And then now, you know, you're a cave diver. Don't do the zero to hero dive. So to me, I'm like, I need to go down there for a month. I need to go down there for two months and really, you know, like involve myself where I'm living, breathing this whole class, like this whole situation that I'm in. So I, I, I have a little bit, I guess, um, uh, where I agree with what you're saying, but I think that there's different circumstances. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it does. And and yeah, you know, going out, it, we're talking about a matter of degrees here. So, of course, going and spending a month uh, somewhere at a destination for destination training is going to develop you more than going and spending a week somewhere, all things being equal, yeah. you know, and and I'm, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that there that there isn't a place for destination training as as part of an individual's development plan, but it, it's difficult to get there on that alone because it takes it it takes some learning over a period of time. I mean, and honestly, you know, we can be talking years. I mean, we're we're probably talking you know a year, and so the destination training um, can can be an important part part of that development mix that you're going through, uh, but. It's, it's not, it's not the most effective way to, or, you know, relying only on destination training is, is not the most effective way to develop in my, in, in my judgment. It, and, and there, there's an important piece of the, the localized aspect of this is, is also the, the getting to know other divers and building that the the culture the culture of safety the who the people you're going to be diving with back home people that you can dive with you know, more more regularly uh, these things you you don't you don't get only by only by traveling somewhere and and my my original point on that was what what I see happening with folks and how. Uh, being dependent on remote instructors has left people teaching themselves or has left, has left people uh, learning from people who are not professional educators, you know, and I, and I see it all the time. I, I see, I see, I see guys that are, they know the stuff like they, they know it and they can, they can repeat it to you, but that does not make an educator. You know, I, I was I was speaking to a uh, someone you know recently who was who was helping me with a class and had had shared some things with a student that I'd rather they not have shared with that with that student and and you know we were having a a transparent honest discussion about it it's somebody that we can have these kind of open discussions and and they were helping me some see some things with my delivery that that helped me improve. And my, my point with them about that relates to my point here is that yes, what they were telling the student was correct. And yes, those are things the student's going to need to know. But what I really wanted that student focused on in that moment was something else. There was, there was something else that that student that was important to that student at this time. And, and you no, know, they, they were distracted by this other information 
that someone who was not experienced with teaching was, was giving them. Um, and, and so for the listeners out there, I, I don't know if I'd mentioned this before. Um, but, uh, when I first started getting into technical diving, um, Mike, you were actually my instructor. Um, I met you on that note where I'm like, okay, I'm going to take intro to tech. Um, I, that was the class that I did with you. And it was a, it was a very big learning curve. Um, it was huge because I thought I, I, I thought I had this down, you know, like I've done enough reading, I've done enough stuff to where I'm like, okay, I know what it is. I know what's going on. And, um, no, I really did enjoy that about you. Well, one, um, it's like a funny aspect. I remember, like I said, I had this thought, this idea of what technical diving is first time. Um, I spoke to you on the phone a couple times. I don't know if you remember this, but I spoke to you on the phone a couple times. Um, I, I was looking for side mount training, uh, uh, you know, no reason other than I thought it just looked cool. And and then to you, you or you, or you're like, well, why do you want to do side mount? And I'm like, I don't know. I just think it looks cool. And, um, you, you really started bringing the why to the whole situation. Like, well, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to do that? And, um, the first time I met you, I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is what I've seen. Technical diving is, um, you know, this is this, this is that. And you started kind of putting pieces away and you're like, no, you need this. You need that. You need this. You need that. Um, but for me, um, that's what I really did enjoy was you were bringing the why to everything. Like, you're like, okay, this is why we do these things. Like, it's not necessarily because you need to, but this is why we're doing this. And, um, I just wanted to throw that out there. Like, I really appreciate that as, as you being my first, you know, gear configuration, this is why we're doing the things that we're doing. Um, because of the fact that, you know, it, 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 it became clear to me like, oh, okay, this is not just something that we're looking in or, or something that, uh, I see on the internet, I'm just like, oh, okay, well, you can explain why we're doing the things that we do. So sorry to bring that up real quick. <laughs> yeah, I, I I appreciate that. And, and um, you know, that was like I, I mentioned in part one, a watershed moment for me was when, when an instructor helped me appreciate the value of the, of the why, you know, and there's, there's not a, there's not a thing, there's not a thing I've ever told a dive student that, that I didn't get from, from somebody else. Right. And, and so that I, I consider myself fortunate to have come into contact just through good fortune of some of the, some of the folks, uh, that I did who I was able to, you know, gather, gather things from. And, and that was one of the, that was one of the things, the, the understanding why, you know, and I, I, um, you know, I've had, I've had folks, you know, tell me, um, not, not realizing that I was a member of the dive team that, that originated the standards of their agency, tell me that, that, um, you know, explain to me how something should be done and, and, and say, you know, because this is how, this is how we do it within this agency. This is this agency's standards. And, and to me, that's a, that's a red flag. If somebody's explanation for why they do it is because that's how that agency does it. It, to me that it makes me wonder, and I'm not saying they don't know, but that raises a question in my mind is, does this person understand why they're doing what they're, what they're doing? Or are they just following 
Are they just following along? You know, and that's where we start sometimes, right? We start following along and we learn the why along, along the way. Um, but I just like to kind of keep that in perspective. And I, and I also want to take a moment. This is what I'm about to say is I feel is very, very important because I don't want to mislead people um, with something I said earlier. And when I was speaking about the example of I'm working on something with a student and they were shared some good information, but it wasn't what I wanted the student to know right now. And, and I talked about people learning from people who are not uh, experienced instructors or not instructors. I don't want to give a false impression here because learning from each other as divers, non-instructor divers is critical, like very, very important stuff. I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't debrief their dives. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't um, discuss what your learnings with other divers. Like that stuff's important. Is good stuff. I'm very excited that there's a whole lot of that out there these these days. But I'm I'm saying though that there, when there's a time and a place for that, you know, and 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 it doesn't mix sometimes with, you know, with the formal formal instruction, and it you know, and it's important to know like the context of you know where it's coming from, who it's coming from, and what the and what the situation is. Yeah, because um, you can build really bad habits that get passed that way as well because then you train it that way because someone told you that way. And that's where I think part of the role of training through an instructor that has the experience in it. That's something we talked about with instructors is probably one of the number one things you need to look at when choosing an instructor is do they dive what you want to learn? You know, it's, it's, you know, are they actually diving that? And that's how they do it. If they're teaching you how they do it, that's very different than someone who read the standards and can repeat them. Right. And so if, if you're in a situation where it's peer to peer learning, that's awesome. But you want to make where training comes in is learning how to, how to train, how to practice, right. The right way. And there's a lot of divers. Well, why do you do that? Well, someone told me they did it that way. And then I, so I did it this way and then I added this thing and then it, it can snowball into an effect of, now you've become solid and this is the right way because someone's somewhere somehow told you and then you've trained it that way. So therefore practice. And so therefore that's the way it is. I think formal instruction comes to teach you how to go out and practice the right way to practice. Right. Um, I think that's an important, I, I like that you're making that point there. Yeah. And that, that's one of those, it's kind of trite, um, but that kind of relates to, relates to, uh, you know, a good, a good point that has been made by many people before about, you know, you've heard the, probably heard the saying practice, practice makes perfect. And, uh, but that's not true, right? Um, practice makes permanent practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent. You practice it wrong. You're going to do it. You're going to do it wrong. So when, when you practice, you're reinforcing something. So what are you, what are you reinforcing? Right. Um, so that, that, that's what that that's like, a I feel like a, an important nugget. And there's there's a place for uh, what I call controlled failure. And like you, you see this as kind of a growing thing in quality management, agile development, things in the professional world um, where this idea of controlled failure, um, I want that's something that an instructor can offer to somebody's development is giving providing a safe space for people to do it wrong. Let them, they learn from that. They learn from that. I uh, was doing, it was a basic recreational open water diver, diver course not too long ago. 
and a, a former, it was a former student's girlfriend was taking the, taking the class and the former student was real anxious to help her, help her along. And I, and I saw her doing something that happens all the time. Nick, you, you're an open water instructor. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, you see this frequently is, uh, putting, putting the regulator on the tank before the BCD common beginner mistake, right? Not, not, not hooking up the power inflator before the air is turned on common mistake. I mean, I saw her putting the reg on, I didn't correct her. Yeah. You, you want them to figure out the problem for themselves. Cause then they, they, the student learns more at the end of the day, how I feel anyways, like, okay, maybe first time you're going to correct them. You know, second time you're going to, you're going to say, see anything wrong. Third time, you're not going to say anything until they try to continue on to that. And then you're like, okay, I'm, I'm trying to build habits here. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And this was, and this was dive, this was dive three or four. It was a second, it was a second day out. And I was like, I'm going to let her struggle getting that BCD on there. Yeah. Like let her see, oh shoot, like the BCD doesn't go on here. Uh, very well. It was a backplate and wing. I'm sorry. Excuse me. It was a backplate and wing. <laughs> you know, let her struggle with getting that on there a little bit. So next time it's like, I ain't putting the regulator on first. Yeah. That was a pain in the ass last time when I did that. Yeah. Right. Um, and, but you know, somebody was over eager and I, and, and this was a learning, learning experience for them too. And it, you know, cause the conversation was like, I know, I know you feel like you're helping the person, by doing this for them, but really you're, you're robbing them of an opportunity to learn. You're, you're taking that from them. You're robbing it. I agree with that. I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but the, the, the biggest um, places where I see that is uh, when I have a family come in where it's, it's children and the mother or parent or mother or father and, and, and mothers usually are, are the worst. I hate to say it, but they're the worst where they're trying to do everything for the child. And, and it actually took, um, somebody had to tell me one time, cause I'm like, I don't know how to deal with this because she's trying to do everything. And, and basically like I, you know, to put it bluntly for me, I'm like, I had to become a, not, not a dick, but like, I just would go up to the mother. I would go up to the individual and be like, Hey, the, the, the student, the, the child and be like, I need to see you do this. I need to see you do this at the beginning. Mom can't do this for you. She's not going to be there for you every day. Um, and, and no, I, I, I feel like I know that all too well where it's like, it's like, hey, you're not going to be there every day. You're not going to be there every dive. When they get older, they need to know how to do this. And and um, um, no, I, I have seen that like far too much. And it becomes um, kind of a, a, yeah, it becomes a pain in the ass. Maybe we can um, switch uh, switch gears here. Uh, what are you doing now? So you, you're obviously instructor. Um, you've done a lot of expedition, exploration. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're currently involved in, uh, especially with CTX and all the things that you're doing there. So something that opportunity that kind of COVID brought me, I guess, is, is um, you know, and actually it had a lot to do with empty nesting as well. You know, when one of the things that occupied my time a lot um, when I, as I was raising my daughter was her softball. She's a competitive softball player, 
realized her dream to go play in college. I was following her college uh, career as well. And uh, when COVID hit, you know, that, that, that ended and she transferred to Texas A&M, joined the dive club there. And so now with my new found free time, uh, I was looking to increase my involvement in, in the scuba business in town. And, you know, one of the, one of the nice things about the Austin market is we, for, for many, many years, we dealt with the saturated market too. There was a dozen or more dive shops in, in town. Which is a wild concept from when I first started because of the fact that, uh, yeah, that's, that's not the case these days. Right. And so we we're down to, we're down to three now. And, you know, for, so there's a couple of things here. Number one, when I closed down my shop in Corpus Christi, I, I promised I promised my family and myself I wasn't going to open another dive shop dive shop again. So that's that's part of it. Um, but the other thing was like you know this town really needed to get to a healthy number of dive shops, and and I don't know what that number is. You know maybe maybe three is not enough. I don't know, uh, but I feel like maybe it is a healthy number of shops in town, and so I don't want to you know I don't want to start heading down the path of saturating the market with another, with another facility like that, is there something I can do to help support them? And that's, that was the idea behind CTX hyperbaric solutions. Uh, one of the things I started doing is, is uh, hydrostatic testing. And so we now have, we now have in town a, a hydro testing facility that's, that's tailored for the dive industry so that local shops have a place they can go. And when, when they're sending in tanks for hydro, if they need to come back oxygen clean with 1845 Trimix in them, they can come back that way with doubles reassembled, mixed gas in them, oxygen deco, you know, whatever you need. It's a, it's a specialized, specialized service center. These are things that the dive shops have historically struggled to to deliver because the the volume of business is just so just so low, and so it's real difficult for any one given shop to be geared up and set up to to do some of these things. And so I'm trying to make trying to give them a way, help provide them a way that they can they can raise the level of service in this space for their customers without having to make that that investment themselves. And so I've been spending a lot of time uh, getting getting that going. And um, no, I, I love that because uh, in, in, instead of and, and, and you actually phrased this to me at one point in time, instead of competing with the shops, you're working with the shops. Um, and uh, so for you listeners out there, um, I was able to get into the other side of the dive industry business. I took certain classes uh, with Mike to become a visual inspector, um, to become an O2 uh, certified cleaner, um, as well as other classes. And to me, that was very cool because it's, it's a very different side of the industry that you don't necessarily learn through your path to dive master or you can, I guess. But, um, and I, and I thought it was really cool cause I learned a lot. I really did. I learned a lot being able to come in here. Um, and actually, um, I feel like now I can look at a scuba tank and, you know, just seeing the numbers, I can see what 
company that came from. Like you just know like, oh, okay, that's, those are those numbers. That's, this is this type of tank. That's that type of tank. Um, and, and I really learned a lot and I thought that was super cool. Um, but I, I really do think that that's cool for some uh, reason though, Mike decided to get an AC after I stopped working there. So I, I don't think he liked me very much, but uh, no, I'm totally kidding. Um, but, like, um, but no, it's, it's, uh, the CTX, uh, hyperbaric solutions has been an amazing thing in my development as, um, I would say a scuba diver, just because of the fact that I've learned so much more, uh, that you don't learn in the open water advanced or you, you they kind of touch on it, but it's been an amazing experience. So I just wanted to thank you for that uh, because I, I've definitely learned a lot on that side of the industry. Okay, glad, glad to hear it. And, I, and I've been learning, I've been learning from it as well. Like I said earlier, you know, lifelong learner and I've learned more about hydro testing in the last year than I, than I learned in, in decades of, uh, being involved in the in the dive business uh, it's been a it's been a fun it's you know it's been a fun fun journey for sure um and 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 getting the getting the good enough project kicked off is something you know something that that i'm working on as well and really really looking forward to that as well as teaching uh technical instruction kind of like i have through most of my technical instruction career if you will uh, you know doing some classes doing some classes here and there with that, um, both diver level as well as, you know, instructor, instructor development, um, bringing, bringing along, you know, new people to the, uh, to the professional ranks of it, to be able to, to teach technical diving. And so that's, those are, those are really what I got, you know, mostly going on right now. It's, it's, uh, you know, the, the service center, uh, good enough springs and, and teaching some, technical diving well awesome well we want to give a, a big thank you i guess number two <laughs> <laughs> thank you number two uh to mike uh, for sharing with us today uh, about his expedition exploration diving in part one um and all about kind of your philosophy and training uh philosophy from instruction where that kind of comes from and technology and tech diving you know <laughs> like i think it's a good it's all really really good stuff and I, I'm hopeful that there will be a part three and a part four and a part five and who knows, uh, you know, how many Star Wars again were there? Nine, <laughs> yeah, nine of them. Well, we should have started on six, right? Yeah, we should Isn't have started on six. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it's three. Four, 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 yeah, four, four, go. four. Yeah. Yeah. There we oh go. my gosh. You, now you just, you know, sicked all the uh, Star Wars people on us. I just ruined you everything. Just, that was Nick who said that. Jar just Jar to be Binks. clear, it was not. <laughs> and that's your favorite Star Wars character, Jar Jar Binks. Um, so if, uh, if you want to get in touch with Mike, again, reach out to ctxscuba at gmail.com. That's ctxscuba at gmail.com. If you want to pick his brain or talk about uh, you know, getting Trimix filled if you're here local or O2 filled or uh, if you want to learn to do hydros and VIPs and those sorts of things or become an instructor or technical diver. I mean, Basically, uh, whatever you want to do, give Mike a, uh, an email, and I'm sure he'll be willing to, to help you out with that. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to be part of our growing community, you can join us pretty easily, right, Nick? Um, you can connect with us at thedivetable.com, where you can do a number of things. Or the uh, Facebook group. Please, please. I know every single one of you out there has a Facebook profile, so check out our Facebook group. Uh, 
dive table group, just Google dive or I'm sorry, hit up Facebook dive table and just check us out. Um, look for my wonderful face. I'll be out there oh, and J too, I guess. Oh man. And you can join one of our exclusive, all inclusive dive clubs uh, and become a patron of the show or send us uh, a message, a voicemail or a pigeon mail or a, what is it? Pigeon a, carrier. <laughs> give us a shellfish call. Oh, I, or, I was going to say, just because we're in the Lone Star State doesn't mean we need a one-star review. Give us a five-star review. All right. Any parting thoughts, Nick or Mike? Not here. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I had a great time. Thank you for involving me in this. I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening. And we look forward to having you back on the next episode of The Dive Table. The Dive Table is a production of Fish Dive Surf Incorporated and a member of the Fish Dive Surf Podcast Network. You can find out more at www.fishdivesurf.com.